I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I don't know where I'm going, but I sure know where I've been. And if you know where you've been, and it ain't the range, you better leave as fast as you can. It's high noon for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 321st day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You determined that you and your team know everything. So you can't be wrong about anything. And then at that point, you're basically prepared to believe whatever your team says. And you think I'm wrong? Well, check this out. This article is from today in an online magazine called Popular Science, which has been around for a very long time and is kind of a storied name in the subject of Popular science and popular science is different than normal science because they try to make science interesting and exciting to normal people who don't know anything, you know, like you. And because they know who their audience is, they get to write articles like this. This is published this morning by Alana Spivak. Maybe that's how you say her name. Maybe it's Spivak. Maybe I don't care. Your damp or sweaty mask still works fine, according to popular science. After nearly two years in the pandemic, we've come to know our masks and how they change intimately through the seasons. Whether it's sweat from a long summer walk or a dripping nose in the dead of winter, many of us have worried if a wet face covering still does the trick against COVID. And everyone from the center's of disease control and prevention to local news stations has been trying to offer reliable answers. Yes, the most reliable answers come from the CDC and from the local news stations that repeat what the CDC says. Now we have a more definitive idea. Thanks to a study published in Physical Review Fluids, there is persuasive evidence that wet face masks can block viral particles just as well as a dry one, which I suppose is to say they don't do it at all because dry ones don't do it at all either. The paper by fluid dynamics researchers from the University of California, San Diego, University of Toronto, and Indian Institute of Science found that in both cloth and surgical masks, moisture wasn't a problem. It gives us some peace of mind that it actually blocks a droplet, which is going out of you. Even if the mask is getting wet, 
says Abhishek Saha, the co-author and professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at UC San Diego. And before we get into the nitty gritty of this very astute research, let's just return to that first paragraph for just a moment, because I want to know what Alana Spivak is really operating with here. Okay, so after nearly two years in the pandemic, we've come to know our masks and how they change intimately through the seasons, whether it's sweat from a long summer walk or a dripping nose in the dead of winter. Okay, so. Maskies have a very intimate relationship with their mask or masks. Some maskies change masks all the time. Some maskies have their go-tos, especially if you're the sort of maskie who likes making fashion or political statements with their masks. Then it's like you buy the very special one. Like I'm sure it's very popular to have a Gucci or Louis Vuitton mask these days on Instagram. And these girls will wear those all the time. And probably some rappers, too, will wear these face masks all the time as a status symbol because they think everyone's going to know that I am rich and tasteful by wearing this mask over and over and over again. And they don't understand that everybody's going to be like, oh, this person is enslaved to brand worship as well as compliance and conformity. Very interesting person. I hope I get to talk to them. But a a very intimate relationship with the mask and all of the changing conditions that might be just settling there on your face, between your face and your very important mask that shows everyone that you respect them and you trust the science. So whether it's sweat from a long summer walk soaking your mask or snot from a runny nose in the winter soaking your mask, the good news is the effectiveness of your mask does not drop at all, according to a sort of scientific study. But what is Elena Spivak really promoting here? So I have a very intimate relationship with my gym shirt, all right? I go work out, I sweat all over it, my body feels the sweat on the shirt, I know what's making the shirt wet, it's sweat, and I think, well, my, 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 this is now a dirty shirt that is going to go in the laundry, and I am not going to wear or touch this shirt again until it goes into the laundry. That's what I think about it. I don't think, you know what? Yes, my shirt is soaked with gym sweat. But if I wrap my shirt around my face, that's going to provide me with an extra level of protection from the very deadly pandemic. And why don't I think that? Well, one, because that's the stupidest thing in the world to ever possibly think. And number two, it's insanely dirty and disgusting. Likewise, if I was to blow my nose in a handkerchief because it's a cold winter day and I have a runny nose and I was to do that a few times or extensively, let's say for an hour on a long winter walk through a winter wonderland, I would not then think if I wrap this handkerchief around my head 
and use it as a mask. I am going to be afforded the same level of protection as people with brand new cloth masks, despite the fact that it's 0% in both cases, but we can leave that aside, okay? I would only think, why do I have a snotty rag covering my face all day? That can't be healthy. That's the sort of thing I would think. But then again, I'm not a scientist. I'm a conspiracy theorist. I don't know anything. They're probably right. It is probably a great idea to buy a $1 mask from China at 7-Eleven, strap it onto my face, go walking through a winter wonderland, soak my mask in snot and think, hey, I'm doing it out of respect. But let's get back to the very popular science. Viruses like the flu and the current SARS-CoV-2 spread as airborne water droplets, infecting those who inhale them. And, yeah, that's uh, true-ish. I mean, there are definitely people who say that. But the droplet thing is a little bit misunderstood. In the ample research performed on face masks and their effectiveness at preventing disease, it's been found that they're best at stopping droplets from getting out rather than from getting in. So if a person is ill and wearing a face mask, their infected droplets will get caught in the mask and they'll be likely to share their sickness with someone else. And of course, that must be a typo. I think what they're trying to say, they'll be less likely to share their sickness with someone else, but they don't say that because who really cares what they write in popular science? Certainly not the editor. And Right there, we are back to the my mask protects you and your mask protects me. And it's good that they mentioned that if you were ill, it might catch one of those droplets. But they don't mention what happens if you're not ill. And the way to know you're not ill is to think, hey, do I feel like shit today? And you don't? Well, congratulations, you're not ill. Wonderful. So now your mask does absolutely nothing. And people like Elena Spivak might be interested in no longer wearing them. Except if you don't wear the mask, then people won't know that you respect them with your compliance and conformity. You are not a compliant and conforming person. You are actually very unique. So unique that you think all of the same things as everyone else about important social issues, about music, about movies, about television, about sports, about fashion, about art, about literature. You have 100% aligning views about absolutely everything. That's how you know you're right. In May 2021, Saha and another group of collaborators published a paper in Science Advances on how well masks block respiratory particles. The experiments led to a question of whether a mask in humid conditions would also work, which is relevant to Saha and sunny San Diego. So he assembled a new team to simulate respiratory droplets hitting three different masks, a surgical mask and two cloth ones of varying thickness. They slowly dripped liquid out of a syringe pump onto the mask until it became damp, then tracked how the layers of droplets interacted with the material using a high-speed camera that recorded the impact of 4,000 frames per second. Both cloth and surgical masks passed muster in this study, though in different ways. Surgical masks have an inner coating 
made of polytetrafluoroethylene. <laughs> That's hydrophobic. Yes, it's scared of water, which means it repels water. So when a droplet hits the hydrophobic layer, it beads instead of getting absorbed. The beading liquid creates extra resistance against more respiratory particles. So it's even harder for more droplets to pass through than in a dry mask. Now, I suppose maybe that could be different if, let's say, what was making the mask wet was actually your own respiratory droplets. <laughs> Who cares, right? Cloth masks, however, are hydrophilic which means when they absorb water, when they come into contact with water, it. That is a real sentence in Popular Science Magazine. Again, I'm going to read it again, and I am reading it correctly, I promise you. Cloth masks, however, are hydrophilic, which means when they absorb water, when they come into contact with water, it. Period. Ilana Spivak in Popular Science Magazine, with one of the greatest sentences ever written. When a droplet hits a dry cloth mask, it can possibly pass through the mesh system of pores. But in a wet mask, the pores are already full, which makes it difficult for more droplets to pass through. That already present liquid in the pore provides additional resistance for the droplet, Saha explains, and he learned this with a very high-powered camera. Still, <laughs> that doesn't mean we should start wearing wet masks on purpose, even though according to this experiment, they work better. It's more effective to just wait till the mask gets soaked from your snot or sweat or respiratory droplets. That's how it works the best. That's when you know it seals. <laughs> the mask just vacuum sucks to your face. While this study offers comfort in case our masks get soaked while we're out, it's important to exchange them for dry, fresh ones when possible. Wet face coverings do make breathing more difficult. <laughs> no big deal. And can lead to increased leakage around the edges. <laughs> Whoa, the masks have edges? Man, I just thought they covered the whole thing and saved everybody's lives. I can't believe shit can get around the mask's edges. How? Oh my God, man. These are real people. Saha emphasizes that the only factor his experiment tested is whether masks are effective at preventing droplet spread while damp. It didn't look at how wetness impacts the strain on ear bands or breathability, because those are the real concerns. Well, <laughs> my layer of snot protects me from spreading the coronavirus, but these ear bands are just a nuisance. As we head into our second COVID-19 winter, we can keep our faces warm in our masks and feel more confident that we're keeping others safe. Because even though we're completely vaccinated for now, that didn't work. But it did work and you should do it too. And I mean, our masks don't work, but you should do it too. While most any covering over the nose and mouth will do the trick, even though there's no proof anywhere in the world that it will do the trick. KN95 masks are recommended, and using multi-layer or multiple masks 
may be helpful. Well, hey, Alana Spivak, what does may be helpful mean? Aren't you writing for popular science? Has science not answered that question yet? Or is the problem that the answer is something you don't like, so you'll pretend because you can find a study somewhere that supports your very, very stupid view that the jury is still out. And here's the real kicker. And even with new research coming out on how masks work against viruses, the bottom line is they help slow the spread of COVID-19, which is all we can ask for. There is absolutely nothing in this article written by Alana Spivak in Popular Science Magazine that leads to the conclusion she just gave, which is that masks help slow the spread of COVID-19. There is not a single location on the planet Earth where that has proven true. It doesn't matter what their little study here says. This little study doesn't prove a goddamn thing about whether or not masks work. It just says that if your mask gets wet, it does the same piss poor job of protecting you that it did before according to a camera in a lab and not according to any real world evidence. Now, she wrote in that last sentence, new research coming out, and she linked to a narrative study about the evidence of efficacy of face masks. She's talking about the new research coming out. Guess, if you will, what the date on her narrative study is it's January 26th, 2021. That's coming up on nearly 11 months ago. And that study is many things, most of them complete and total bullshit and propaganda from the WHO and universities in China, because I looked. But one thing it is absolutely not is new research coming out. And Hey, maskies, hey, vaxies, hey, any kind of commies. If you are sick of being addressed as the child brains you still are, what you need to do is shed these stupid and evil communist ideas. You don't actually have to believe anything in that article just because it's in a place called Popular Science Magazine. And you don't have to believe it just because they have a study. Okay. Sometimes studies are very good. Sometimes studies are very bad. And sometimes studies are just lied about by media figures like Elena Spivak, who are dumb as rocks and only there to tell you what you want to hear. Why? Because they too want to write what they want to hear because they are scared of everything. Most particularly, a disease that kills one out of every thousand people who gets it, nearly all of them being old with significant, multiple significant comorbidities and or people that died of medical malpractice. But what does she really fear? That 
everything she has done and put her heart and soul into for the last two years has been a complete and total fraud. And she will never escape that because she is a child-brained communist that shows no signs of being able to emerge from this period in any way. That is one of the most pathetic articles I have ever read in my life. And we should all be embarrassed that anyone thinks that that form of communication should be convincing to adults anywhere on the planet. Now, what kind of adults will believe that? Sadly, it is the exact sort of adult that has taken power in many of our institutions. People who were educated through college, but didn't really excel. They got the college degree, usually from a very prestigious place. And they repeat the slogans quite well, but they have no other discernible skills. And so they go out into the world and assume that as long as someone says the thing they're saying has authority attached to it, then that authority must be worth believing. And so they believe it and they go on and on and on trusting this authority and that authority and the next authority. And they will continue that way without end because to do otherwise would require them to have their own thoughts and to be able to gain confidence in their own thoughts. And that, my friends, is unfortunately inaccessible. Now, if you are not that kind of person and you have realized that forming and trusting your own thoughts actually is a helpful survival skill, then what you need to do is throw off the shackles of all this bullshit Figure out a way to make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs and migrate back to America where we will accept you with open arms because we want more Americans in the American project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Tuesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. So glad you're here. Stick around for a week or two. I'm going to make you an American again, and you're going to feel so much better. So as I suspected, the Michael Gableman clips from yesterday were a big hit. And I want to play one more because what I focused on yesterday was the way he was handling the Democrat communists on the panel and how that was a model for how Democrat communists should be handled. You should speak directly to what they are doing because you know what they're doing. We don't have to be polite in all these situations when people are obviously trying to slander us to our faces or tell us that we are liars or somehow uninformed when they can't bring any information themselves and are lying themselves. But. I didn't really get into the substance of what Michael Gableman was talking about. So I want to play you a little clip here and then check out this piece from Uncovered DC that did a great job of summarizing the hearing. I think it's, it's very clear that Mark Zuckerberg's goal was to defeat Donald Trump and elect Joe Biden. Well, let me, and let then me just, he funded CTCL yeah, and I? the Vote at Home Alliance. Okay. Uh, and their local representative, a man from New York City called Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, who last time I was before this committee, I, issued, I looked in the camera and I issued him an open invitation to come and talk with us. We would love uh, to have him come and visit Wisconsin. Again. And so far, he has not accepted my invitation. And so we may be looking at more robust ways to secure his presence. 
Mark Zuckerberg comes to five cities and spends $8.8 million, gives it to the mayors of those five cities, and then switches it midstream, mid-negotiations from a COVID safety plan to a get-out-the-vote campaign, which looks an awful lot like David Pluff's roadmap to defeating Donald Trump and Don and Pluff, of course, being employed by Mr. and Mrs. Zuckerberg. So that's a little more of a taste of what Gableman was going after in the hearing. And I'm going to get to the Uncover DC piece in a second. But he mentions there at the end, David Pluff. And now David Pluff is an interesting figure. David Pluff was one of the main Obama guys and in the lead up to the 2016 election, David Pluff was a regular on the Pod Bros podcast that eventually became Pod Save America. Before that, it was called Keeping It 1600, and it was on the website The Ringer. It was like one of the Ringer podcasts. And I used to listen to that podcast regularly in 2016 because I was a very confused person back then. And David Pluff was regularly on talking about how anyone who thought that Hillary might lose was a bedwetter and that no one should be worried about anything because Hillary Clinton has it completely sewn up. Now, how would David Pluff know that? Why would he be so confident and then turn out completely wrong? And then why would he leave from that situation and write a book that is a roadmap to the election fraud that we saw occur in 2020. Well, one might consider that the reason he was so confident is because he knew that he had a system in place in 2016. Now, his confidence fell mightily that day because the system didn't work as they had planned. And Donald Trump won because Trump supporters overwhelmed whatever fraud was happening, or perhaps some of that fraud got cut off and they couldn't execute the plan. And you're welcome to disregard that if that is just too much for you to think about. And I will remain right here saying it because it is true and the world will know that it's true. And that is pretty much the standard I always operate under. Because the alternative, the mode of thinking that we are trained into exercising is that we take the central narrative's word for it unless we are buried in an avalanche of competing information and we still don't believe that avalanche even as it crushes us until the central narrative says it's okay. And in your conversations with child-brained communists over these past couple of years, I guarantee that you have been subject to this ridiculous standard of evidence. You are put on the defensive. You have to supply an infinite number of sources to convince someone that they are wrong and they will not read your sources, okay? They will ask you for sources endlessly and tell you that that's still not enough to prove it to them while never actually examining any of the evidence you hand them. And so 
What you should take away from that sort of thinking is that that person will not believe anything unless they are told by figures in the central narrative. It is not okay for them to say something that opposes the slogans unless someone else in the central narrative has already supplied them new slogans. And once that happens, they will switch immediately because deep down they already knew they were lying. But it is wonderful that Gableman is all over this David Pluff thing. Now, to UncoverDC.com, Wendy Strauch Mahoney. Gableman hearing Zuckerberg infiltrates Wisconsin election in five key cities. Zuckerberg operatives and money infiltrated five key Wisconsin cities in the November 2020 election. The cities allegedly took about $9 million total from the Zuckerberg Foundation, according to former Justice Michael Gableman. Now the special counsel in charge of investigating the 2020 election in Wisconsin, Gableman presented his findings for the Wisconsin Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections hearing on December 1st. The express focus of his investigation and discussion was to explore the extent to which the mayors and clerks of the five Wisconsin cities allowed, quote, Mark Zuckerberg's employees to plan and administer those cities' elections, end quote, in 2020. The investigated cities are Green Bay, Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, and Madison. Gableman received straightforward cooperation from only one of the five cities, Kenosha. The other cities offered him little or no cooperation after subpoenas were served. Speaker Robin Voss of the state assembly signed off on the subpoenas. Gableman issued the subpoenas to the respective municipal clerks, the Wisconsin Election Commission, and the mayors of all five cities. After issuing the subpoenas, Gableman told the assembly that the state's attorney general, Josh Call, filed a lawsuit against Speaker Voss, Chairman Branchin, and Gableman himself to, quote, prohibit Gableman from asking any questions of Megan Wolf, who is the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, end quote. Met repeatedly with resistance, Gableman had to hire lawyers paid for by the taxpayers to work through the investigation. Oral arguments are set for December 23rd in Madison. On November 29th, Gableman filed two petitions for writs of attachment against two of the five mayors, Green Bay and Madison, because they, quote, simply failed without reason or excuse to appear for their depositions and answer questions about how and to what extent they allowed Mark Zuckerberg's employees to plan and administer their city's elections in November 2020. The question at hand, according to Gableman, is, quote, whether the millions of dollars each of these mayors received from the Zuckerbergs may have induced them to do something other than to treat all candidates fairly and impartially, and whether those mayors used the Zuckerberg money to get out the vote for Joe Biden, end quote. Gableman relayed his dismay over the apparent lack of reporting by the media concerning the ignored subpoenas and conduct on the part of various government officials. Gableman lamented. The incurious press has taken up the partisan cause of unlawful electioneering by shielding from accountability potential wrongdoing by government officials. Green Bay Mayor Eric Genrich and Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway have chosen to ignore the subpoenas issued by the Wisconsin Assembly because they have no intention of answering uncomfortable questions about how they ran their elections and what they did with the millions of dollars of Zuckerberg money. Gableman says hiring teams of lawyers by government officials using taxpayer money amounts to legal evasion maneuvering of responsibility and is just one big cover up. He cites a book written by the former political director for Obama, David Pluff, as one of the bases for his conclusions. Written in 2019 and called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, it was remarkably prescient about what seems to have occurred in the 2020 Wisconsin election. 
The plan laid out in the book, Gableman says, appears to have been executed with uncanny similarities in the actual election. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg later hired David Pluff to head policy and advocacy at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Zuckerberg's philanthropic organization. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative gave $350 million in two installments to the Center for Tech and Civic Life. The CTCL allegedly played an integral role in getting out the vote in the state. Under the guise of keeping voters safe during the coronavirus pandemic, the cities in question instead used Zuckerberg funds to run a partisan get out the vote initiative in favor of Joe Biden. Gableman says the Zuckerberg funding, quote, changed from the stated purpose of keeping people safe from COVID. And this is not just my opinion. We look at the record to see how much money was actually spent on COVID safety measures. And we see it as it pales in comparison with the amount of the get out the vote effort. Now, get out the vote has historically been a partisan term of art. Get out the vote is short for get out the vote for a particular candidate for office. The five cities then took the remainder of the roughly $8.8 million that Mark Zuckerberg was giving away and under CTCL's contract provisions were required to get out the vote. I think the citizens of this state have a right to know whether that was done on a partisan basis and or for partisan purposes. And what, if any, partisan effect it had in those cities? These are reasonable questions in light of the roadmap that was set out for all to see in the David Pluff book initiative in favor of Joe Biden. And he's exactly right. We also know from the work that Phil Klein has done that the provisions he's talking about in that contract are what they call clawback provisions. Okay. Basically, Zuckerberg gave this money to these localities. People in these localities were incentivized to take that money and use it to get the vote out for Joe Biden. If they failed to get the vote out at the level Zuckerberg required, Zuckerberg was able to take that money back after it was already spent, which would mean that the people in those localities in charge of distributing that money often to themselves, they would have to then go back to the localities and demand taxpayer money to reimburse Mark Zuckerberg. That, my friends, is insane. Manipulation of the elderly has also been a focus of Gableman's investigation. Officials and volunteers allegedly ignored election laws concerning the treatment of some of the most vulnerable voters, the elderly. Special deputies were missing in numerous nursing homes around the state due to guidance from the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The absence of the special deputies left nursing home employees in charge of assisting the elderly to vote. Countless nursing homes also barred poll workers from helping the elderly vote to allegedly avoid the spread of COVID-19. Therefore, some elderly voters could not vote in the 2020 election, and there is evidence that others voted despite severe cognitive impairments. All of these activities were illegal and disenfranchised elderly voters in the state. To answer questions of budgetary transparency, Gableman listed all of the expenses and salaries associated with his team's investigation. And it lists those. You're more than welcome to read them in the article. Representative Spritzer, who has been a continual thorn in Gableman's side, challenged Gableman's judgment in hiring people associated with the Trump campaign who, quote, were actively involved in trying to change the results of the November 2020 election that you're investigating, end quote. And you heard that in the clip yesterday. Spritzer was referring to Rob Hoyer, president of the Wisconsin Voters Alliance. Spritzer accused Gableman of being, quote, firmly in the lane that the outcome of the election should have been overturned, end quote. 
And that is when Gableman cut him off. He said, stop. I never said anything about overturning any election. Stop making things up. Shame on you. Gableman defended Hoyer, saying he is a good and honorable man. Spritzer characterized Gableman as unhinged after the hearing. He did this in a tweet. He didn't do it to Michael Gableman's face. He said, this unhinged display from Mike Gableman shows what I've said all along. He is unfit to run the speaker's sham investigation. And that language is the same that they tried to use in Arizona. They always classify everything as a sham and a fraud to make sure that the public knows that the election was perfectly safe and secure and anyone suggesting otherwise must be crazy. According to reporting at CBS58.com, Representative Spritzer called the subpoenas a waste of time after a federal judge ruled last year the election funds were valid. He said, disgraced Trump-aligned attorneys have already wasted hours across multiple hearings proclaiming their dislike for local municipalities seeking the funds they need to administer elections. He added, by issuing these subpoenas, it is now clear that Speaker Voss is using every power available to him to placate far-right extremists. Now, these localities did not need Mark Zuckerberg's money. There is no excuse for taking hundreds of millions of dollars around the country to run elections from private entities who have an interest in those elections and then get people from their company and from their industry peppered in throughout the fake administration. We know what that is. We don't have to pretend it is something else. These people do not deserve the benefit of the doubt, no matter how much the child brain communists want to give it to them. And that is the only way they could possibly believe this. Again, they need an avalanche of information contrary to their position to even think that they might be wrong. And once they get that avalanche of information, well, they still will say, well, you can't really prove that's what's happening, even though you can. They will assume that you can't, that it cannot be firmly proven or else the media would tell them. And since the media hasn't told them, that means that they are right and that these people just do need the benefit of the doubt and that somehow all of this really was necessary and legal and above board, even though every shred of evidence everywhere suggests that's not true. Gableman reiterated the difficulty of completing his investigation due to the lack of cooperation from government officials. My work and my employees will be judged by one thing, and that is the finished work product. And right now, what is preventing the finished work product is the fearful running and hiding of those government officials who do not want to be held accountable and who do not want to tell the public what they did with the Zuckerberg money and why they did it. We heard that yesterday in the clip. Gableman also stated that open records requests obtained by Hoyer show evidence of government officials directly communicating with CTCL in emails. The emails, Gableman said, show evidence of CTCL operatives coming into these five cities with all sorts of Zuckerberg money and with all sorts of strings attached. As Gableman said, even WEC admitted ties with CTCL outside consultants. Toward the end of the hearing, Representative Branchin noted that there were almost 14, maybe 18 different groups that came to Wisconsin under the nonprofit status that, you know, did quite a few different things. Gableman added, it is very clear that Mark Zuckerberg's goal was to defeat Donald Trump and elect Joe Biden. He funded CTCL and the Vote at Home Alliance and their local representative, a man from New York City named Michael Spitzer Rubenstein. Gableman has the emails to prove it, and a couple of them have been made public. And there are screenshots of these emails in the article. 
According to reporting by the Wisconsin Spotlight, the National Vote at Home Institute is one of several private left-leaning groups primarily funded by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Spitzer Rubenstein, with an impressive political resume working for Democrat politicians and campaigns, had significant influence over the administration of the presidential election in Green Bay and, it appears, in Milwaukee. Gableman berated Spritzer for what he believed was a feigned concern for election integrity, calling his interactions speeches disguised as questions. Representative Spritzer, the real concern here is, and I would think as someone who represents a district, your real concern would be, was the 2020 election rigged with bipartisan efforts by government officials using public money to get out the vote for a particular candidate? That's my concern. Significant numbers of absentee ballots came into question in the state's 2020 election. At one point, those associated with the Trump campaign estimated there were about 221,000 illegal and or invalid absentee ballots. For example, 17,271 absentee ballots in the Wisconsin election came into question due to coordinated partisan activities like democracy in the park. In that scheme, the event was widely advertised by the Biden campaign and city employees were hired to, quote, register, instruct in the process of absentee ballots, help complete them and serve as witnesses. Okay, so an absentee ballot in Wisconsin requires a witness to declare that you are indeed the person signing and filing the absentee ballot. Mark Zuckerberg's money went to paying people from the Democrat Party to serve as those witnesses and declare that people who are complete strangers to them until just that moment are indeed who they say they are. Which is to say, they completely removed a legal check and balance from the process, and they did so on purpose. They also were not allowed to have the democracy in the park event. That too is illegal. In fact, every little bit of that is illegal, and they did it anyway. Another 28,395 indefinitely confined absentee ballots were issued to those claiming that status after March 25th, 2020, and were cast in violation of the law without the required photo identification. Municipal clerks should have reviewed and expunged those voters from the rolls before the election. The margins were very small, with only about 20,000 votes separating Biden and Trump in the race. Or, as Representative Spritzer says, it was the most safe and secure election of all time, and there were no irregularities that could have ever possibly shifted the outcome. And if you don't yet see all of this as an attempt by the Democrat Party to win elections they cannot win by breaking the law, then have a look at this. This is ABC News this morning. Bobby Kana Calvin from the Associated Press writing. New York City poised to give voting rights to non-citizens. New York City, long a beacon for immigrants, is on the cusp of becoming the largest places in the country. Man, why don't they just check to make sure they're writing complete sentences? How does this happen? Honestly, New York City, I'm going to I'm going to put the right words into this just so it can be read by normal humans. New York City, long a beacon for immigrants, is on the cusp of becoming one of the largest places in the country to give non-citizens the right to vote in local elections. Legally documented voting age non-citizens comprise nearly one in nine of the city's seven million voting age inhabitants. 
Under a bill nearing approval, some 800,000 non-citizens would be able to cast ballots in elections to pick the mayor, city council members, and other municipal office holders. And then ABC News doesn't even bother to put a period at the end of that sentence. So we have really expert editing going on at ABC News. The propaganda itself is even degrading as we go on. It is kind of amazing. But let's look at the beginning of this paragraph again, because this is insane. All right. Legally documented voting age non-citizens comprise nearly one in nine of the city's seven million voting age inhabitants. Okay. One in nine. That is 11%. According to these numbers, there are 6,200,000 American citizens who are eligible to vote in New York City, and they want to add another 800,000 non-citizens to that voting pool. Could that change every single election if they want it to? The answer is quite obviously yes. They're basically saying, well, you know, we just don't really win elections well enough with the voting population at this current level. So what we really need is to get 800,000 more voters on our side. Non-citizens still wouldn't be able to vote for president or members of Congress in federal races or in the state elections that pick the governor, judges and legislators. Now, right now, that's not what they're going for right now. But they are going for that in general, and they want to federalize all the elections. Does anyone think that they will not use this same convoluted bullshit logic to convince America that what Americans really want is for non-citizens to be able to vote in elections? That, my friends, is absolute madness. Little stands in the way of the effort becoming law. The measure has broad support within the city council, which is expected to ratify the proposal Thursday. Mayor Bill de Blasio has raised concerns about the wisdom and legality of the legislation, but said he won't veto it. And of course he won't, because Bill de Blasio is one of the dumbest and most corrupt communists in this entire country. Again, the city council is making this decision for all the residents of the city. And this decision will affect their own elections. Isn't that incredible? They are thinking, I wonder what 800,000 more votes on our side could mean for our accumulation of power. Do they care what the people think? Obviously not, because no person in their right mind would ever want to do this. The law would give an electoral voice to the many New Yorkers who love this city and have made it their permanent home, but can't easily become U.S. citizens or would rather remain citizens of their home nations for various reasons. <laughs> See, this is just about compassion. And if you don't let these people vote, then you're racist. The Democrats at this point are basically just like Chris Farley in the Saturday Night Live sketch, The Herlihy Boy. Let me move in with you, please. When you come back home, don't make me leave. Please, let me move in with you. I'll push all my things into the corner. That'll be my little area. Please, I won't bother you. You don't even have to look at me. Just let me move in with you, please. 
I'd like an answer, and I'd like that answer to be yes, please. I've already slept in your bed. If you didn't want me to move in, why'd you let me sleep in your bed? Just let me move in, would you please? Can we stop this cruel game and allow the boy to keep one shred of dignity? For God's sakes, I can't stand to see him in all this pain. You vicious bastards! Let him move in with you! Is it so bad to see somebody happy? So just let him move in! For the love of God, let the boy move in with you! Good Lord! Just let illegal immigrants vote, you heartless bastards. It would also cover dreamers like Eva Santos, 32, who was brought to the U.S. by her parents at age 11 as an unauthorized immigrant, but wasn't able to vote like her friends or go to college when she turned 18. It was really hard for me to see how my other friends were able to make decisions for their future, and I couldn't, said Santos, now a community organizer. <laughs> wow. And that is exactly what we need. More illegal immigrants coming in to be community organizers and then expecting to be allowed to vote, even though they're not citizens. Maybe I should just be allowed to send mail-in votes to the UK or to Australia. Or how about China? They have elections there, right? And maybe they'd say yes. Maybe they would say, you know what? We should all vote in every country together. But since that's too complicated, let's just go ahead and decide that a certain group of people are rulers over the entire world. And then we'll just only vote for those rulers and we'll call it like the Galactic Council or something. And we can vote for them. I mean, pfft, the votes don't matter, but those rulers will have the full will of the people behind them, no matter where you're from, because all is fair. In love and global communism, more than a dozen communities across the United States currently allow non-citizens to vote, including 11 towns in Maryland and two in Vermont. You got that? So that's 13, more than a dozen. And yeah, okay, 11 of them are in Maryland and two in Vermont, but you get it. San Francisco, through a ballot initiative ratified by voters in 2016, began allowing non-citizens to vote in school board elections. Well, that is curious. Which was also true in New York City until it abolished its boards in 2002 and gave control of schools to the mayor. Oh, that's so much better. The move in Democrat-controlled New York City is a counterpoint to restrictions being enacted in some states where Republicans have espoused unsupported claims of rampant fraud by non-citizens in federal elections. Oh, yes, those claims are so unsupported and they would never even want non-citizens to vote until, okay, until city councils and local governments and state governments and then ultimately the federal government make it legal for non-citizens to vote and then, then, they would want non-citizens to vote. But right now, they don't want non-citizens to vote. And that's how you know that non-citizens didn't vote. Last year, voters in Alabama, Colorado, and Florida ratified measures specifying that only U.S. citizens can vote, joining Arizona and North Dakota and adopting rules that would preempt any attempts to pass laws like the one being considered in New York City. 
I think that there's people in our society that go to sleep with so much fear of immigrants that they try to make an argument to disqualify their right to elect their local leaders. Okay, well, here's the thing. New York City Councilman Edanis Rodriguez, who is originally from the Dominican Republic and was unable to vote until he became a naturalized U.S. citizen. You don't have a right to elect local leaders because you're not a citizen. This is about whether we are living in New York City, we are contributing to New York City and paying taxes in New York City, said Rodriguez, a Democrat. Oh, I'm shocked. De Blasio, though, has questioned whether the measure would survive a legal challenge. Federal law allows states and local governments to decide who can vote in their elections, but some, including the mayor, have raised concerns about whether state lawmakers must first act to grant the city the authority to extend voting rights to non-citizens. Look, there's obviously an argument. We want people involved. We want to hear people's voices, de Blasio recently said on the television news program inside City Hall. I still have concern about it. Citizenship has an extraordinary value. People work so hard for it, he said. We need people in every good way to want to be citizens. The minority leader of the city council, a Republican from Staten Island, said the measure will undoubtedly end up in court. It devalues citizenship and citizenship is the standard by which the state constitution issues or allows for suffrage in New York state elections at all levels, Borelli said. The proposal would allow non-citizens who have been lawful permanent residents of the city for at least 30 days as well as those authorized to work in the U.S., including so-called dreamers, to help select the city's mayor, city council members, borough presidents, comptroller, and public advocate. The law would direct the Board of Elections to draw up an implementation plan by July, including voter registration rules and provisions that would create separate ballots for municipal races to prevent non-citizens from casting ballots in federal and state contests. Non-citizens wouldn't be allowed to vote until elections in 2023. And... Thank goodness they're going to make separate ballots that should solve everything and not present any problems at all. Hopefully they will make it so easy that like in California, these non-citizen residents can just print the ballots out at home and definitely print out the right ballot and then definitely only vote in the races they're allowed to vote in and then send that vote in, making sure that it's absolutely the right ballot. And then that ballot will be counted no matter what, because there will be no way to say that's not a legal ballot and no one's allowed to contest it and no one is allowed to ever look. But we're going to use the trust system. Because there is no way in the world that this is being set up only to cheat in elections, you know, like the all of the uh, federalized voting bills that they have tried to pass through Congress this year. Those are all about making the elections more safe and secure while opening them up to thousands of different ways to commit fraud and things like ballot harvesting, permanent mail-in voting, etc. But hey, none of them are evil. None of them are trying to cheat. There's no evidence. We're just going to have to go ahead and trust them again. Giving non-residents the right to vote could empower them to become a political force that can't easily be ignored, said Anu Joshi, the vice president of policy of the New York Immigration Coalition. New York City, with more than three million foreign born residents, would be a fitting place to anchor a national movement to expand immigrant voting rights, said Ron Hayduk now a professor of political science at San Francisco State University, but who spent years in New York steeped in the movement for non-citizen voting rights. New York, the home of the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, prides itself on being the place of immigration, he noted. So there's this question of what's the place of immigrants in our city? 
Are they really New Yorkers? Are they full New Yorkers in the sense of qualifying and deserving the power to vote and to shape its political future? The answer should be a resounding yes, he said. And who can't agree with that logic? I mean, the fact that the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island are in New York City means that we should give immigrants who are not citizens the same exact rights as all citizens. It only makes sense. If you don't want to do that, well, I'd suggest to you that maybe you start a petition to return the Statue of Liberty back to France. Now, let's change subjects without a segue. And you know what? I'm going to go a little long today. If you don't like it, you just turn it off. This is from Kyle Becker's excellent Becker News. Breaking federal judge deals blow to Biden's unconstitutional vaccine mandate in ruling for South Carolina. This is today, Kyle Becker. A federal judge has dealt another crucial legal blow to the Biden administration by blocking the federal vaccine mandate for contractors with the U.S. government. U.S. federal judge sides with Attorney General Wilson and blocks Biden's vaccine requirement for federal contractors, Disclose reported. A federal judge on Tuesday has again sided with South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson and blocked a Biden administration mandate that would require employees of federal contractors to be vaccinated against COVID-19, News 2 and Charleston reported. The judge granted a preliminary injunction, which will prohibit the government from enforcing any such mandate. Now, the third time federal judges have sided with Attorney General Wilson and blocked enforcement of Biden administration vaccine requirements, the report added. Abusive power by the Biden administration has been stopped cold again. The rule of law has prevailed and liberty is protected. When the president oversteps his authority, the law is thankfully there to halt this misuse of power, Attorney General Wilson said. The case was brought by Attorney General Wilson and Governor Henry McMaster, along with attorneys general and governors of six other states, including Georgia, Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, Utah, and West Virginia. Other state entities are also named as plaintiffs, the report noted. The lawsuit argues that the federal mandate issued by President Biden on September 9th is unconstitutional as it violates the 10th Amendment, which grants states and the people powers that are not delegated by the Constitution to the federal government. It also calls into question the lack of exceptions for contractors that work alone, outside, or even exclusively remotely, the report noted. And it's good to keep in mind why it is important to refuse to comply always, okay? When Biden put this nonsense out on September 9th, the next day I came on this show and said, they can't do this. This isn't going to work. And what has happened? Yes, it's three months later, but these mandates are falling apart all across the country. Hospital systems are rescinding their mandates. Corporations are rescinding their mandates. What they did was convince people to go out and take a vaccine that does not protect them and is not safe on the threat of losing their jobs. Now, some people actually did lose their jobs. I'm not saying it didn't happen anywhere ever. I am saying that you need to not comply with any of it because that's how you make it go away. All right. They don't have real power and they don't have legal authority behind their fake power. Even if you were doing nothing other than buying yourself time, that time is important because eventually the misuse of false power falls apart in front of everyone. Does it seem like they're going to just be able to declare more mandates and then make them happen? Sure doesn't seem that way to me. Now, 
Let's go on over to the Federalist. Email shows Biden's FDA pressured Google to take down YouTube video on monoclonal antibody drug. Isn't that amazing? The illegitimate federal government and the bureaucracy beneath it are working in conjunction with private entities to violate the First Amendment against American citizens to make sure that they don't know critical information about their own health. And I get it. It's a conspiracy theory to believe that these people are not acting in the people's interests. They are just trying to save lives and prevent misinformation from killing your grandmother. Isn't it obvious to everyone that that's what they're doing? These are all good people. That's why I voted for them. I'm a good person. That's why I voted for a man who was mentored by a Klansman to fix racism, for instance. Very good person. This is L. Reynolds in Federalist. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration attempted to pressure a Google lobbyist into suppressing a YouTube video about a monoclonal antibody drug and its potential use against COVID-19, according to an email reported by Alex Berenson. An email from April 30th reportedly shows FDA social media director Brad Kimberly writing to Jan Fowler Antonaros, a lobbyist for YouTube's parent company, Google, about a three-minute video about the drug Leronlamab. I hope I said that correctly. I just wanted to flag a video that we believe is misleading when it comes to COVID-19, says the email written the same day the video was posted. Overall, the video is very problematic when it comes to COVID misinformation. Kimberly continues, this video should be pulled. Kimberly noted that the drug is unapproved by the FDA, along with intellectual property concerns. But as Berenson pointed out, the drug's lack of FDA approval means it is effectively unavailable to patients. Thus, whatever its potential side effects or lack of effectiveness, it is not actually a risk to anyone. According to Berenson, Antonaros replied a week later that the video had been reviewed and found not to violate YouTube's guidelines. A conclusion Berenson speculated was, quote, probably because it did not promise the Leronlamab would cure COVID, only touted its potential and encouraged the FDA to allow it under an emergency use authorization. The video is now listed as private. Its poster, Ryan Joseph, told The Federalist that it was his decision, explaining that he, quote, did not wish to attract negative attention towards Leron Lamab due to Alex Berenson's article, end quote. A YouTube spokesperson confirmed to The Federalist that the decision was Joseph's, although the video can be seen as an archived webpage. While YouTube deserves credit for choosing not to censor the video, the FDA social media director's decision to try to pressure the tech company into suppressing speech is outrageous. The FDA did not respond to The Federalist's request for comment. And by the way, why does the FDA have a social media director? Honestly, honestly, the FDA does not actually need social media pages. We are accustomed to all of these federal agencies having social media pages where they try to be very cute influencers to the child brains who are still stuck on legacy social media, pretending that it is some about something other than their own attention. But are we really to believe that they need a social media director to put out their Instagram posts. It seems like maybe the job of the social media director is to monitor social media for the no-no words and then report them to their corporate partners who are acting as state actors in the service of censorship of those no-no words. 
This isn't the first or only time the federal government has flagged views they deem misinformation for big tech political allies to censor. Back in July, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki admitted that the Biden team is regularly, quote, flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation, end quote. A few days later, Psaki said nothing was off the table for the administration working with big tech to silence perspectives that are politically inconvenient under the guise of misinformation control. And it's good to know that our fascist overlords will at least acknowledge their fascism. Yes, we are happily working with the world's biggest corporations in partnership. Yes, they know all of your data, where you are all the time, everything you read and say and think. We can influence their moods even, but we work in direct partnership to make sure that no one ever sees any view that is unapproved. And this is not Orwell's 1984. This is just us providing a base level of protection, even if it gets a little wet. Now, some big news dropped Late in the afternoon yesterday, and here it is, the New York Post, Julie Grace Brufke, that's quite a name, Representative Devin Nunes to retire at month's end will head Trump's social media venture. Representative Devin Nunes, a prominent ally of former President Donald Trump, will leave Congress at the end of this month to head up Trump's new social media company. Trump Media and Technology Group announced the appointment of Nunes as CEO in a Monday evening statement. The time has come to reopen the Internet and allow for the free flow of ideas and expression without censorship. Nunez was quoted as saying the United States of America made the dream of the Internet a reality, and it will be an American company that restores the dream. I'm humbled and honored. President Trump has asked me to lead the mission and the world class team that will deliver on this promise. Trump described Nunez in the statement as a fighter and a leader who will make an excellent CEO of TMTG. Devin understands that we must stop the liberal media and big tech from destroying the freedoms that make America great, the 45th president added. America is ready for truth social and the end of censorship and political discrimination. Nunes was seen as a frontrunner to become chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee if the GOP regained the majority after next year's midterm elections. The 48-year-old currently serves as the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee and was one of Trump's most vocal defenders in Congress during the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller into allegations of collusion between the Trump 2016 campaign and Russian government officials. In April 2017, Nunes, then the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, recused himself from the panel's own investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 campaign after alleging that some of Trump's personal communications may have been swept up by the intelligence community through incidental collection. The following year, Nunes released a memo charging that the FBI used the now discredited Steele dossier to secure warrants from a special court, allowing agents to electronically surveil former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page and many others, by the way. In 2019, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz found that the Bureau's Russia investigation was littered with errors and relied heavily on the dossier, while former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe admitted to lawmakers last year that he would not have approved a June 2017 warrant application to monitor Page had he known the source of the supporting evidence. Very convenient. As the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, with the entire weight of the legacy media and Washington establishment bearing down on him, Devin stood by his convictions on behalf of his constituents and hardworking Americans across the country, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said in a statement. And every step of the way, Devin was proven right. There is no better person to compete head to head and lead an alternative to the big tech and big media cartel that has carried water for the Democrat Party for years than Devin.
Devin's departure leaves a gaping hole in this institution, but his dedication to our country will persist, McCarthy added. Nunez, a former dairy farmer, was first elected to the House in 2002, but narrowly won re-election in 2018 and 2020 and was expected to face an even more competitive race once changes to the Golden State's congressional map took effect. However, sources close to Nunez insisted that redistricting was not a factor in his decision, and of course it wasn't. Again, what you can see right there in the end is the influence of California's corrupt election system trying to push out a powerful member of the opposition. A lot of people have noted, and I believe quite correctly, that Devin Nunes would not leave Congress unless the belief on the MAGA side, the America First side, was that his job there was done. You'll recall that Donald Trump awarded Devin Nunes with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the nation's highest, I think the highest, civilian honor he can bestow. And it would be very un-Trumpian to move someone away from a position that they were desperately needed to continue filling. So you would have to think that there is a plan on how to replace Nunes and not miss a beat in Congress while he makes this move into the private sector running the Trump media organization. Now, this is from Post Millennial following up yesterday with more news about the Trump media endeavor. The headline is Trump's new media platform and Rumble have a distribution deal. Howard Lutnick, the CEO of Rumble's parent company, Cantor Fitzgerald, stated on Monday they have worked out a distribution deal with former President Donald Trump's planned Truth social platform. Truth and the 45th president are going to use Rumble's infrastructure, their technology, their cloud distribution capability. So they are going to be a service provider, a tech provider to the president's Truth Social, Lutnick told interviewer John Bachman on his John Bachman Now show. Rumble, a video-based pro-free speech platform, works in a similar manner to other streaming services like YouTube, but promotes neutrality, refusing to censor its users like other big tech companies have been doing. In direct competition with YouTube, Rumble has grown quickly, reaching a 15% market share among U.S. users over the past year, according to Newsmax. Lutnick continued during the interview. What this is, is people with political ideology being asked to leave YouTube. Comedians are now coming over. Gamers are coming over. It's a broad group of people who don't want to be censored. They will be able to speak their minds, speak their truths, and speak their opinions. So I think Rumble, which is neutral down the middle, I think it's going to get a huge following of people who just want to speak their minds. Lutnick further reiterated that Rumble, after the deal struck with his company, will now have the money to go do whatever they want to do. Trump's anti-big tech social media startup raised a billion dollars from investors over the weekend to fund the 45th president's digital media venture. One billion dollars sends an important message to big tech that censorship and political discrimination must end. America is ready for Truth Social, a platform that will not discriminate on the basis of political ideology, Trump stated. Now, where is this going? Okay, this is the speculation portion. I said months and months ago that I thought when Truth Social was announced, I did not believe that they were going to build a new social media platform from the ground up and that they would most likely be acquiring platforms that already existed. This Rumble distribution deal is some evidence that that was correct. I am waiting to see if perhaps they end up acquiring Getter, which is a Steve Bannon, Jason Miller, and others venture 
including Miles Guo, by the way. Jason Miller was Trump's former comms guy. So that is a Trump ally, CEO of Getter. It would not surprise me at all to see Getter go under the Trump media umbrella. It also would not surprise me at all to see Trump's media group potentially acquire Gab. So what we would have is Rumble, which is a YouTube competitor, Getter, which is a Twitter competitor, and Gab, which is essentially a Facebook competitor, all joining forces under the Trump media umbrella. Now, I don't know this is going to happen. I just think that this is probably the right strategy and that Andrew Torba from Gab and Jason Miller from Getter are pretty obvious Trump allies whose companies could benefit the Trump media group and could be benefited by joining the Trump media group in terms of their growth. And the timing of this is also going to coincide with the next steps in Trump's lawsuits against the big tech companies. So all of this has a really interesting timeline in the first couple months of 2022. And I think a lot of people are very excited to see where this goes. The difference we will see in the public conversation once there is a critical mass of people on alternative media outlets is going to be enormous. Assuming the platforms are properly fortified against whatever attacks the communists might throw at them, this would be an absolute game changer. Likewise, if Trump's case cases against big tech go forward successfully, that would be a game changer as well. The only way that these communists are holding on is through censorship. That's it. If the public knew what was actually happening, the number of people who would continue to believe in the illegitimate administration, in all of the COVID narrative nonsense, and every other issue that these communists continue to try to influence America and win on, is close to zero, okay? No one would ever believe such complete and total bullshit if they were simply exposed to alternative points of view and realized how much information there was out in the world that every single thing these people believe happens to be wrong. So that's why they're censoring, because they want to know that they have that added layer of protection, even if it's all covered in snot. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. 
I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!